Acts chapter 8. So if you like history, I'm a massive fan of history. There are events that you look at that make all the difference in history. Hannibal, that incredible general, probably, arguably, the greatest general in history. We copy him today, his maneuvers that he invented. Right? He took an army across northern Africa, over into Spain, all the way back around. He took elephants over the Alps. Like no one thought he could do it. He took them over the Alps, dropped into Italy, and then ravaged the Roman, Roman Empire. It wasn't an empire yet, Rome, right? He defeated him at Cannae, killed 70. It was an 80,000 army. He killed 70,000 of their men. Captured like 5,000, and they don't know what happened to their 5,000. Like decimated it. They raised another army. He did it again. He did it three times, three times, and suffered like almost no casualties. And historians wonder, why didn't he march into Rome? He got like 50 miles from Rome. There was no army. He had decimated them all. And for some reason, he just kind of lollygagged. And then bad things happened back at Carthage. They called him back and the rest is history. If he would have marched into Rome, history would have been massively different, massively. Julius Caesar coming home, deciding to cross the Rubicon with his army. No general had done that in history. It's crossing the Rubicon. That decision changed Rome from a Senate-led republic to an empire ruled by emperors because Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Charles Martel at the Battle of Portiers where he stopped the Islamic push up into Europe. And if he had not stopped them there, Europe would have become Islamic and we'd be Islam, Islamic today. It's a massive, massive moment in history. 2007, the invention of the iPhone. It's gonna be right up there, I'm telling you. Think about how that has changed in less than, well, just over, in 11 years, think how that has changed our world. Like everything it has made obsolete. Newspapers, who gets a newspaper anymore? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, all right. It hasn't made it obsolete yet. It will make it obsolete. Who looks at a phone book? Well, got a few in here. <laughs> These are things I don't do, right? Who, uh, who still wears a watch? Yeah, okay, well, I'm wrong. Yeah, Apple Watch, that's right. Well, it's an Apple Watch. Yeah, who still has friends? Because the iPhone has replaced most people's friends too, so. <laughs> I got a Facebook friend. I have 500 Facebook friends. What do you mean I don't have friends? Right, so. This, I think, Acts chapter seven, the murder of Stephen is the fuse that explodes the church outside of Jerusalem. And if this had not happened, I don't know what would have happened to Christianity. It is the fuse that blows the church up and moves it out to become the empire changer that it is. So let's look at how that happens. Chapter eight, verse one. Who has a map? I'll try that one. Who still uses a map? Do you? 
why in the world? I mean, <laughs> GPS smartphone, put it in. You're like, it tells you in 300 yards, turn left. You just don't even, you, have to be, you can be a complete moron. Like I can get anywhere now. It's awesome. All right. Even that one didn't work. Verse one, and Saul approved of his execution. This is Stephen stoned, coats put at his feet. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Stephen is stoned. His buddies, devout men, verse two says, made great lamentation over him. Well, didn't they know he just went to heaven? Yeah, they knew that. And they still made great lamentation over him, right? I think we get it very wrong when we tell this somebody, oh, they're in a better place. I never say that to somebody. I personally don't think it's helpful. I think the most helpful you can, thing you can do is make great lamentation with them, cry. I say, I hate death. I hate whatever the disease was. I hate that our world is broken in that way. I hate it. It's called a theology of protest. I protest against that stuff because guess why? It's not from God. Death is not from God. These guys make a great lamentation. They know he's in heaven. They know all that. Doesn't matter. They cry massively. I think the West has lost the ability to lament well. And that's why death carries longer with us. So we simmer with it. I think they exploded like for 30 days or whatever it was, just exploded with anguish. And then they're able to just move on. Okay, we can move on. But instead it kind of, it just, bur it, it just gurgles in us. Cause we like try to, well, yeah, he's in a better, oh, we have all these like fancy, no, I hate this. He should not have died. He should be with us right now. She should be with us right now. This is wrong. I think that's the way to do it. That's me. They make a great lamentation. They don't say he's in a better place. And they knew where he was at, right? So Saul now, somehow through Stephen's, I believe it was his message, becomes radicalized, right? At this point, verse one, he's passive. He casts the vote, but he's not throwing stones. The other people actually put their coats at his feet. He's just like, yeah, I approve of this, but he's not actively doing it. He's passively saying, yeah, okay, that's good. Something in this little point right here changes Paul from passive, Saul, I'm gonna always do that, so forgive me, changes Saul from this kind of passively approving guy into a guy now that is radicalized, is gonna be active in trying to stamp out Christianity. He goes to this kind of like us versus them mentality. This black and white, we're good, they're bad, and we have to stop them. The black and white thinking of life is actually very childish because most things in life, if you really look at them deep enough, there's some gray in them. 
But kids, what do kids always do? They wanna make really simple comparisons to decide this is good and this is bad. One of my sons asked me a while back, he said, dad, are you stronger than Chad Hansen? I said, oh yeah, totally, man, come on. Right, and it, the, the thing is, is if you're not dad, he's good, you're bad, right? Just a simple, that's all that matters. Is he stronger than you? He is good and you are bad now, that's childish. But radicalized people end up doing that. They make it very us, it's called dualistic thinking, us versus them, that's all there is. There can be no middle ground, there can be nothing else. It's very simplistic and childish. And here's what they say happened with Saul. This is history. Saul was a student of a guy named Gamaliel. We saw him in Acts chapter five. If you notice Gamaliel's philosophy in Acts chapter five, it's really live and let live. He says, hey, don't persecute these guys. If it's not from God, remember Judas, the guy who thought he was something, he's dead now. And Theodos, he thought he was something, he's got his head cut off, right? If it's not from God, same thing's gonna happen to them. If it is, it is from God, you're fighting against God, and it's not gonna work. Just let it go, right? Well, Gamaliel was part of, there was two massive rabbis that really set Israel on a course. You either sided with Hillel or Shammai. Hillel was Gamaliel's camp, which was kind of like more kind, more considerate, more kind of middle ground. Shammai was very radical right. So they actually had these questions that they would ask to help tell people, this is the camp that we stand in. I read one of these questions. One of the questions that determined like, what camp you'd wanna go in was this. Should you tell an ugly bride that she's beautiful on her wedding day? I mean, that was literally the question back 2000 years ago. The way you answered that would determine if you were Hillel's camp or Shammai's camp. So Hillel said, every bride is beautiful on her wedding day. You say she's beautiful. Shammai's camp said, nope, you tell her the truth. How brutal is that? <laughs> like, I would think people would be being, getting the snot kicked out of them all the time, right? That's how radical Shammai's camp was, black and white. You never say something unless it's 100% true. And if you need to tell somebody the truth, you just tell it to them. So what they said was this, we are to be the Shammai camp citizens. We're to be like Phineas. Not Phineas and Ferb, the cartoon, but Phineas from Numbers 25. If you know that story, uh, the Israelites are invaded by some prostitutes and God gets angry. And so right in front of this time when God's angry, this man grabs a prostitute and walks right into his tent in front of Moses and all the elders and everybody just saying, I'm gonna do whatever I want. So Phineas picks up a spear, goes into that little tent. Um, they, I invented a word this weekend when I was with the pastors. It's called marriaging. They were in the room marriaging and he just went, but shish kebab them both. So what Shammai says, yeah, brutal. What this radical right group said was this, we need to be like him. We will defend the Torah with spear and sharp sword. So somehow it's believed in this event right here, passive Paul, Gamaliel Hillel camp said, yeah, that's not working anymore. I'm going to now go over to actively pursuing this group of people like Phineas in Numbers 25. And so he gets radicalized right here. 
That's what history seems to say. So he's gonna do this. We looked at this on Sunday. Now here's what happens. The good side of this. Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Little history lesson, you've got Jerusalem. Just north of it is this region called Samaria. These two regions did not like each other. The reason is it reminded the Jews in Jerusalem, Samaria did, it reminded them of national failure. It's when they had disobeyed God and been completely decimated by a group of people called the Assyrians. It would be like maybe to a German living right next to a Nazi white supremacist group, right? It would always be reminding the German like, oh man, that's such a blight on my country. So it's like that. There was this constant like reminder of, uh, well, on top of that, what happened when they were taken by the Assyrians is they began to intermarry. So the Samaritans were half Assyrian and half Jewish, which was a no-no to good Jews. You didn't do that. And then to make even things worse, in about the fourth century BC, the Samaritans decided, we're not going to your temple anymore. We're gonna make our own temple on Mount Gerizim. And then they went one step further. We're not even gonna read the same Bible as you. So they took the normal Bible and they threw out a bunch of stuff and they said, from now on, this is our Bible. So you couldn't even have a discussion with a Samaritan about theology because they'd be like, nah, we don't buy that Bible. Nah, nope, we don't believe in that. Nope, that's not in our text. So it was very frustrating to them. So the Jews looked at the Samaritans like they were second class losers. So there was this real animosity between these two groups, right? So who is the one who can go down there and share the good news with them? This guy named Philip. Here's why. Philip had just had his buddy killed. Have you ever had someone really close to you killed? What's your state of mind after that event? You're very tender. There's something really tenderized about your heart right after somebody dies. So he's got this real tender side to him. On top of that, he had just been kicked out of Jerusalem for his weird beliefs. So the Samaritans would be like, yeah, we know all about that, yeah, right? Plus, we know from chapter seven, chapter six, he was a Hellenist. Remember what the Hellenists were? I'll re-explain it. It's like a kid, a boy that you grew up with, leaves Grants Pass and moves to Portland. Some of those boys return to Grants Pass and they're exactly the same. They still drive big trucks. They still four by in the woods. They still go burn random things out there. They'll eat hamburger helper out of a big aluminum pot with their hand. Like they're still Southern Oregon boys, right? But every once in a while, one of 
the Oregon, Southern Oregon boys will go up to Portland and then when they come back, you'll have lunch with them and they'll pull up in a little Subaru car. They'll get out. When they order lunch, they'll order vegan. And then as you're sitting there, they'll knit you a pair of socks. And you go, what in the Hellenist happened to you? That's the Hellenists. They adopted a different culture, the Greek culture, and then they came back to Jerusalem with that different culture. So it made them kind of outcast by that. They're like, oh, you don't quite fit. So Philip is all these things. Who's the perfect guy to go share with the Samaritans? Philip, right? Strange beliefs, got him kicked out of Jerusalem. He's not quite Jewish and he's not quite Greek. He's kind of this half and half guy and he's really, got a really tender heart right now. I mean, it's just God saying, perfect. They would never listen to Peter and John because they didn't like them. But Philip is in the perfect spot to go minister to these people. I say that because a lot of times God will take our experience and our history and use it so that we are the perfect witness to a neighbor, to a coworker, to a friend, to a family member. And we just have to be willing to do it. And he does something real simple here, right? He preaches Jesus. When he's preaching Jesus, it says that he started doing signs and unclean spirits crying out with loud voices came out of many who had them. Demons just cried out and left people. Do we struggle with demons today? If we're really, really, really honest, do we believe in demons? I thought about taking a survey. Like raise your hand if you actually believe in demons. But, oh, go ahead, you did. I didn't want to embarrass anyone. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one that I, theologically, yes, but I wonder like practically, like right now, are there like, these spirit beings that are rolling around? It's a hard one. I'm thinking about doing a message on just demons at some point. Maybe it's from Acts chapter 19 where we get into more of it. But I think there's two ways that Christians go and both of them are wrong. The one side is people that become so preoccupied with demons, like demons are everywhere. So your coworker comes late to work. You're like, dude, why are you late? I got attacked by a demon. How do you know? Oh, my car. I'm driving my car, right? It's, it backfired six times. Six. I looked at my watch. It was six o'clock, right? This is the sixth day of the week. It was Saturday. Boom, six, 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 man. I don't know. <laughs> and when I got out one final time, I'm looking at my car. It backfired one more time. This black cloud came out, looked just like a demon. I took a picture of it. Check this out. Look at it. Right? That's a preoccupation. You go check the guy and his car's out of oil. You're like, that's not a demon. You're just dumb, <laughs> right? So that's one side that's wrong. But there's this other side that's just as wrong that says, well, I don't think they're anywhere. You gotta be careful of that. I think Satan loves to hide in a disguise. Nah, I don't really exist. Nah, we don't really exist because he gives them free reign. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, don't be ignorant of the devil's devices. Like that is his favorite tool. Ignore me, forget about me. I think his favorite tool is also be so preoccupied with me that everyone's like, you're crazy. I don't even wanna to talk to you. 
But I think there is a balance of understanding throughout the gospels and the book of Acts and into Ephesians, there's a battle and it's with Ephesians 6, 12, principalities, powers, and spiritual wickedness in high places. And when we forget that, look out. I think we're easy pickings. So yeah, he does that. And on top of that, what's interesting is this. He does apostolic signs. So if you are a person that knows theology, you know that there's a camp of the cessationists. Cessationists say this, that there's no more healing, that, that God doesn't work the way he worked in the book of Acts. So one of the arguments for that is this. Jesus said to his disciples, you will do these works. And so the apostles were the only ones that did apostolic works, healings, casting out demons, raising the lame, right? So that's one of the arguments for cessationists. They come to Philip and they're like, hmm. So a cessationist will always say, yeah, Philip is interesting. Philip is interesting. I say, hmm, it's very interesting to me. Maybe, just maybe, God might still do great things like in the book of Acts. That's what I believe. So he's kind of one of those. Well, I wonder if we have a Samaria today. Are there groups of people that we just kind of, mm, maybe it's potheads or heroin addicts or rich people or poor people or homeless people or whoever it is, like, mm. we gotta be careful. I think sometimes we can do the us versus them dualistic thinking and we think that we're somehow better than them. But to me, I always go back to the gospel. And the gospel says this, compared to Jesus, I'm a heroin junkie. Compared to Jesus, my righteousness is filthy rags. So if you really understand the gospel, you can never feel superior to anyone. That's what the gospel tells you. It's like this, it's like grass arguing about who's taller when they're planted at the roots of a redwood tree. But really, you're not tall at all. Don't argue that way. I want to be a person that never, never believes I'm somehow superior to someone else. Humble, humble. Jesus, you saved me. But by the grace of God, so go I. I could be worse than that person if it was not for your grace in my life. So help me to show them as much grace. And that's what Philip does. He goes down there, preaches Jesus, shows these signs. And verse eight says, there was much joy in that city. Because he didn't go down with a superior attitude because he went down with the gospel. I am praying that Jesus raises up Phillips for Grant's Pass. People that preach Christ, solid doctrine and do powerful works. And their city has great joy. That's my prayer because I want great joy for my city. So he preaches, great joy, but like any good story, here, dun, 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 here comes the problem. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. Isn't that such a good line? Saying that he himself was somebody great. If you have to tell people that you're great, you're not. But I'm so great, man. People really love me. No, they don't. So he's going around. I'm great. I'm great. And they all paid attention to him. 
from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they had paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, was he preaching? Kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So he went around telling everybody he was great and he gets this nickname. Verse 10 says, Theos Magus. How's that for a name? God the Great. Could be literally they had a God named Magus. Some people say that. Or could just be that, you know, he's the great sign of God. Theos Magus. I thought Matt Magus sounds pretty good too. <laughs> Matt Magus. And they paid attention to him probably literally. He made money off this stuff, right? He's a magician. So he loves the applause of people. Here's what I say about applause. It's like cologne. It's okay to smell it. Just don't drink it. It'll make you sick. He's drunk on applause and look what happens. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So big picture. Philip goes down there leads this massive revival. Like he is now megachurch pastor. Brilliant, huge. People are getting saved, right? His number one convert, Simon Magus. His number one convert, Magus, he sees Peter start laying into him, yelling at him. And I can just see Philip going, Peter, come on, bro. I mean, come on, you need to take a class on how to disciple new believers. You need to chill out, right? Like you're ruining my best convert. Sometimes I think we're so polite, we don't tell people the truth. Peter does not have that problem. 
He is saying, this is the truth. And there's two big issues in this text that people always ask. Was Simon saved? And why does it take Peter and John to come down from Jerusalem to Samaria before the Holy Spirit is given? They're really quite debated things. I'll give you my take on it. First, was Simon a believer? Verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed, was baptized, hung out with Philip, was amazed. Was he a believer? There are two kinds of faith in the Bible. There's saving faith and there's knowledge faith. So James chapter two, verse 19 says this, even the demons believe. But are they saved? What are they believing? They believe knowledge-wise about God. That's what he's arguing about. They believe in God, no doubt about it, but they don't trust him. It'd be like this. Here's, here's my illustration. When I was in college, um, we had this class where we studied rock climbing gear. Like we tested it. How strong is this stuff? Uh, it, was the, it was the metolius. They had this thing that you put into a crag and it opens up and then you can like put a rope on it. Those things are unbelievably strong. You can lift up a truck with them. Like it's just unbelievable. Like their gear is, is, is amazing. So we tested all of it. So I had this knowledge of how strong Metolius gear was and it's strong and I believed in it. Well, good buddy of mine, also an engineer said, Matt, come climb with me. We're gonna go over to Smith Rock for the weekend. We're gonna climb Smith Rock, come. I said, okay, never climbed Smith Rock before. We go over there, we do a two pitch ascent. Each one was about hundred feet. And so it's at that place, it's about 600 feet up. So we are 200 feet up, standing on this eight inch ledge with 400 feet of rock above us. And I'm, we get up there and I'm all proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, Matt Magus, right there, baby. So I'm up there and then I see Mike Knapp, who's a very experienced climber. He looked very concerned. I'm like, what's going on? Like I'm standing on an eight inch ledge, 200 feet below me, what's wrong? He's like, oh man, I blew it. What do you mean you blew it? I should have brought more rope. What does that mean you should have brought more rope? It means that you can't self-repel. So normally when you get off a rock, you have the rope in your hand and you just let yourself down. You're in control of it. You know, you're just kind of letting yourself down. It's great, it's fun, it's awesome. I said, what does that mean you can't self-repel? He said, it means I'm gonna have to let you down. I said, what does that mean you're gonna have to let me down? It means you're gonna have to turn around and then you're gonna have to just kind of jump off backwards and I will let you down. I said, no, I choose life. I am not doing that. And he goes, dude, we just took a class. We studied this stuff. It's strong. You have to wear it. No, I don't care. I am not turning around backwards and you are not letting me down 200 feet. You gotta do it. So like four hours later, I'm finally, okay, fine. And I remember I just stood and we were like this, like I was like face to face. I'm like, Mike, do you have me? Yes. No, do you have me? Yes. No, I want to say I hate you, but he was the one letting me down. I wait till I was at the bottom. I hate you. <laughs> and then I just take the plunge. That's faith. That's saving faith. It's where you lean your life into what you actually believe. One is head knowledge. That's fine. It's quite a different thing to say, I am trusting my life to this. That's saving faith. Simon 
I don't think he had that. And to me, the telltale sign is he won't pray. Verse 24, you pray for me. New believers, the majority of them, somehow realize in the moment that they are saved that they can now talk to their heavenly father, that the veil has been rent, that it is open, and I can now talk to my heavenly father. The bridge has been repaired. I've been brought back into the family. I've been adopted. I know I'm part of his family. He won't pray. So I don't believe he's saved, right? So that's my answer to that one. I think he's Machiavellian. You know what that means? Anybody read The Prince? Don't. It's a terrible book. It's how to manipulate every situation so that you remain in control. And, and the prince is the guy that will too, nothing matters to him. Just getting power matters, right? So I, I tell people this, I say, in life, it's great to have goals, but more important than your goal is values. Because if you are goal-driven in life, then your values will always bow to your goal. So if your goal is make money, then if something illegal makes you money, guess what you'll do? Well, my values change then because my goal is more important. So it really matters who's in the driver's seat. Is it your goal or is it your values? And if your values are, I wanna love God and I wanna love people, then your goals will always be good goals. But if you don't have those as your values, look out, you become Machiavellian the prince. You'll do anything to get your goal. That's what I think Simon is. He sees this thing. He's like, I want that. That's the most amazing trick I've ever seen. I'll buy that, which is what they did back then. It was before YouTube. You couldn't YouTube how they do that. So he wants, I want that trick because that's power. He's Machiavellian. So I don't believe he was saved. The second question is, why after Philip preaches the gospel, they believe in Jesus and they're baptized, why don't they have God's spirit? Why does it take Peter and John leaving Jerusalem, coming down there, laying their hands on them, and then, and only then, do they receive the spirit? This is the only place in the Bible this takes place. In Acts chapter two, they believe, baptize, filled with God's spirit. Philippian eunuch believes, baptized, Saul, in chapter nine, believes, baptized. Cornelius, middle of Peter's message. Peter hasn't even finished explaining the gospel. They're filled with God's spirit. You, it's the only place, why in the world does this happen? So out of this text has come a couple of doctrines. Number one is this, the Roman Catholic idea of called bishop confirmation, where in order for something to be ordained by the church, right, you could have, priest doing something, but until the bishop comes down, lays his hand on it, if you would, and confirms it, it's not actually a legitimate work of the church. That comes from this text. Another one is that there's a two-stage process to being filled with God's spirit. That you get, when you are saved, you get maybe a drop, but then later on, there can be a subsequent overflowing or filling or second, well, there's all kinds of terms for it. Event like that. Here's what I believe. I believe this event is this way because if Philip went down to Samaria with the way he was geared, with the way Samaria was geared, and they just kind of take off on their own, 
that church is gonna go very different than Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem comes down and say, hey, wait a second, you guys are a little bit different. They're gonna say, yeah, you've been always saying that to us for the last 400 years. Forget you, we're starting the second church of Jesus Christ down here. So God in his wisdom says, I'm gonna use Philip to crack open the door. But then I'm gonna bring Peter and John to show it's one church, one spirit, one body. We're unified. This is one thing. I'm not having two different churches. That's what I believe. But I also believe something else in here. And it's anti-American. Because in America, we want everyone to be equal. And everybody is equal, but that does not mean everybody is the same. That there are different giftings. I think Peter was truly given the keys by Jesus to unlock parts of our world to the gospel. It's Matthew chapter 16. Peter in Acts chapter two unlocks the gospel to the Jews. Peter in Acts chapter eight unlocks the gospel to the Samaritans. And Peter in Acts chapter 10 will unlock the gospel to the Gentiles. That he is uniquely gifted by Jesus Christ to do those things and nobody else could do them. I think there are unique gifted people that no one else can do the things that they can do. And we can either fight that and be like, that's unfair. Or we can be like, cool, it's a body. Not every part is the eye, not every part is the mouth, not every part is the foot. I'm cool with that. That there are leaders, the Old Testament says, of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And it doesn't matter because we're all about building the kingdom and that's what matters. So I think Peter is really gifted to do what Jesus Christ said he was gifted to do. Unlock different regions for the gospel. So then we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We did this on a Sunday. I'll read it and quickly make a couple points. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, massive revival, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. This is Luke just informing his outside readers, not the best place to go. He's making that really clear. He's in a really awesome revival and he's going to a very, very desolate place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We did this on a Sunday, two Sundays ago, I think, three Sundays ago. Uh, I had a couple questions. First question was, how was he made a eunuch? Not literally, but if you read history, some people, especially in China, as adults would make themselves eunuchs. And they did that because it was the only way for a peasant to have upward mobility. So it would be, hey, the queen needs a new CEO. So when you go to apply, you ask, what are the requirements? Oh, you have to really want the job. And so people, men would say, okay, this is the only way I'm getting out of this tier of life into a different tier of life. I'll do it. The second was people that had slaves. If you wanted a docile slave, then when they were boys at a certain age, before things kicked in, then like a steer almost. If you, wanna, if you, wanna, if you don't want a bull, want to steer, then they would do this to kids sometimes. So brutal, brutal practice. Um, Jesus even says, some are born this way, Matthew 19, 12. Uh, so we know this today, one in 4,500 babies are born with what's called uh, ambiguous genitalia. Now, modern science, modern doctors can do a massive amount to help that. 2,000 years ago, you didn't. You grew up different. Now, maybe the numbers were less back then. I don't know. You know, maybe we've gotten worse with chemicals and stuff like that that interfere, uh, but it still happened back then. Jesus said some were born that way. So that's one of those three ways this happened to this guy. Now, when I told it on Sunday, I chose the boy because well, it fits my story better. So I did that that way. But either way, he's a damaged man. Uh, the second one was what? Eunuchs aren't allowed in the temple? Yep, I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy 23. This would have been posted at the temple gate. Deuteronomy 23, one. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. Every man just winced right there. Oh, so that would be posted and told those that had those things, you're not wanted in here. It's what the eunuch would have seen when he walked in. Why would God do that? Why would God exclude people that were hurt in this way? I warn people all the time, don't read your Bible. You'll be offended. Don't read your Bible. It'll make you go, what? And when you say, what? You need to look into it. Here's what I believe. Uh, number one, God makes this mandate because he does not want anybody to be forcibly made a eunuch in Israel. So he is saying, listen, the temple was the center. We think of religion like a kind of almost like a vestigial organ, like, you know, well, you could, it's an appendix. 
That's not the way it was 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Religion was the center of everything, right? Your feast days, it was the friendships. It was, it was the center of life. So what God is saying is, listen, don't do that to people because it will cut them out of the center of what is life. So God is, by this, making a massive prohibition on it. And what we have from history is it didn't happen in Israel because of that prohibition. So that's number one. Number two, if you look at the ceremonial unclean laws, they all deal with one major topic, death, right? A woman, when she's menstruating, is unclean. Why? Because she's leaking life. The Bible says, life is in the blood. A man, if he has a seminal emission, is unclean. Why? Because that's a sacred fluid. That that fluid combined with something else produces life, right? It's very different than any other fluid. Correct? Hopefully you don't have a health lesson here. If I spit on the ground and my wife spits on the ground, a baby just just go, boom, pops out of the ground, right? Okay, these are sacred sacred, sacred fluids. And, and it, it, was, it was if you would, it died. So you're unclean. Leprosy, it's a disease that's killing. So it's unclean. If you look at almost all the ceremonial laws, they have to deal with death. Something's dying here. And God is saying in ceremonial law, he's saying this, I hate death. I am anti-death. Don't bring death into my presence. It was not my design. I didn't want death. I didn't design death. Death entered my good living world. I hate it. I think a man who had been hurt this way is in a way unable to produce life. And it's saying that same kind of message. So those are my two reasons for it. Hard, hard. That's why we rejoice in Jesus who opens the door wide open and says, all are welcome in my kingdom, which was God's original intent with Abraham in Genesis 12, one and three. In you, all nations on earth will be blessed. All people, eunuch, leper, addict, male, female, slave, free. Welcome in my presence, okay? So finally, um, I'll end with this. Philip is hugely used. Why is he hugely used? I have a couple reasons. He was faithful in the barbecue and he was faithful preaching the gospel. He was faithful waiting on tables or winning souls. He was faithful in a big city or with one dude out in the desert. It didn't matter to him. He was faithful. I will do whatever is necessary. And then secondly, he was obedient. Philip, I want you to leave this massive revival and go out to the desert. Okay. God does not tell him why. There's no, oh, while you're out there, you're going to meet this Ethiopian eunuch who's really important to me and I really love him. Oh, nope. Just leave your revival, walk three days to the desert. Aye, aye, captain. And he goes and does it. Throughout the Bible, what you see is this. God rarely gives all the details to the why. Joshua, March around that city. Okay. Did it. Do it again. 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 This time at the end, yell. Wow, the walls came down. 
I didn't tell them the details. Just trust me. Go out there and do it. Don't worry about all the details. Hey, woman, get a bunch of jars together from all your neighbors and then take your little bit of oil and start pouring it into them. But why? Don't worry about it. Just do it. Throughout the Bible, it's just obey me. Trust me. Trust that I am good and generous. Trust me. Step by step by step. I think sometimes God doesn't give us all the details because if he did give, give us all the details, we might be like, nah, I don't really wanna do that. And we'd miss out. We'd miss out. It might be like this. My daughter, when she was about four, Carissa, my oldest, I put in a eight foot slide into our doughboy pool and I needed to get her to go down it. So there's that moment. I get her up on top of the slide. I go down to the water. I'm like, come to me, Carissa. Come on, slide down the slide. And she's like, I, I, I can't. What's gonna happen to me, dad? Now, if I had gone engineer on her, I could have done this. Sweetie, here's what's gonna happen to you. You weigh 42 pounds. You're eight feet up. Gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. The coefficient of friction between your swimsuit and the slide is 0.18. Gravity will accelerate you down that slide to about 21 miles per hour. Your feet will hit first into the water, throwing your body forward and slapping your face into the water at a force of 9,520 newtons. This will peel your eyelids back, flushing them full of water, stretching your third through seven vertebrae, almost paralyzing you. You'll be disoriented by this in the water. And if I was not fast enough, you would drown and die. Come to me, sweetie. (laughs) What do I do? Trust me, you're gonna love it. And when she finally did it, joy. And she couldn't stop doing it, couldn't stop doing it, couldn't stop doing it. I think some of us miss out on the incredible joy that God has for us because we want too many details. And God just keeps saying, trust me, trust me. Jump into that ministry, share with that neighbor, tell that person, trust me, it'll be joy. And we want details and God wants trust. And we have to decide which one we're gonna get because I don't think you get both. Trust him, trust him. Philip did. All right, go to the desert. Oh, hey, that dude, hey, go join yourself. And then God just lets him take over, right? God doesn't say, oh, by the way, now share the gospel. Once he's there, he's like, I know what to do now, okay. He's reading Isaiah, he's reading John three sixteen. Okay, I know what to do now. It'll be clear, take a step. So Father, may we be a congregation that hears your voice and takes a step of faith, trusting that you are good and generous and you're actually after our joy. We're on the top of the slide, you're after our joy. So if there's areas, Lord, where we've been tentative, we ask that your spirit would fill us with confident power in your greatness and your goodness and your abundance. And we'd become obedient servants like Philip and we'd see great joy brought to our city. And I ask this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.